Okay, good morning. Good morning, Renew Church. It's good to hear, be here with you guys. Um, kind of as you know, Wilson mentioned, it's been almost two years uh, since Renew started, and we've gone through two books of the Bible. <laughs> so, so to balance it off, as Wilson said, we're going to go through the whole Bible in about 15 weeks for this, this summer, okay? Just so we, you know, don't lose track of that there are other books um, in, in the Bible. Um, so thanks for the introduction, uh, Wilson. Um, as he said, I'm going to be talking about uh, starting us off from Genesis, dealing with the topic of creation, and just a little bit of background uh, from myself for where... Um, just my origin story here. Uh, my, some of you know... Um, I was a, I have a kind of a weird background, but that kind of works for this topic. Um, I was an undergrad, as an undergrad, I was a physics major, so graduated with an undergrad degree in physics. Um, I then went on to get a master's in theology, um, which is kind of surprised some people. Um, and then after that, I went on to get, uh, do another master's in science and theology combined just to make sure that uh, people didn't think it was a fluke for me to do one and the other. Now, when people hear about this background, usually they, they think of, they ask me, are, are you like, like schizophrenic or something? <laughs> I mean, because the view is that these two topics, science and theology, are very disparate. In fact, they are conflicting. That a lot of times you read um, in popular media and other, um, uh, types of publications that, you know, you can hold one or the other. Um, so it seems weird to people that I've kind of been studying both sides of, of things. And, um, and what I can tell you, and I hope that we'll be able to, to uncover together uh, through these next couple of weeks, um, is that it isn't a conflict. There isn't a, um, a battle between science and theology, um, that what uh, that narrative of them being in conflict with each other is actually a quite recent thing, and it's not the way that things were um, early on or that the way things should be. Um, so let's pray with me then as we begin. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and also for your creation. And as we look around the world that you've created, help us to um, better acknowledge you, what you've revealed through your word as well. Uh, thank you for uh, your spirit with, being here with us. Um, may you reveal uh, your word and your creation to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I want to show the, start with this quote from a theologian uh, by the name of Gresham Machen. Macon, okay? Um, he, wrote, he wrote this. False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. So he's talking about this idea that no matter how effective of a preacher that we can be or how effectively we can preach the gospel, if there are these false ideas that are kind of blocking or stumbling those from 
being able to willing to even consider or listen to the gospel, then our message, our preaching may be in vain. Now, what I want to make clear from the start is that the false idea that we're going to talk about, the false idea is not science. Science is not the false idea that is um, what is causing people to stumble or, or blocking the gospel uh, message. The false idea is this concept that, there, that science is in conflict with faith. That you cannot hold, that if you hold one, then you cannot hold to um, the other. And in the society, since science is such a, plays such a big role in our society, technology and all the things that come about from it, um, because of this, science is seen as kind of this arbiter of truth in our society. If we allow this false idea to permeate and to continue to permeate through our society, then that will indeed be an opposition to the gospel message. And so that's this, this idea that we need to um, uh, dispel as, as false. <clears throat> it is not the case that science and faith are in opposition to each other. Okay? Science itself is not truth. Okay? Science, probably understood, is a process by which we can come to a truthful understanding of things. The science itself is not what di uh, dictates truth. It's a process for understanding truth, okay? or getting a truthful understanding of things. And as Christians, as believers, truth, oops, sorry, truth is something that we can all affirm. Okay, truth, the pursuit of truth and a true understanding of things is something that we can certainly, most certainly be in affirmation of. Okay, so, so as believers, we do not have to be afraid or opposed to science because science by itself is not opposed to faith, it is not opposed to theology. And it's only recently where the idea of science being um, in opposition to, to faith it's only, a, that's a more recent thing. Historically, there has been great compatibility between science and theology. In fact, the basis of what we call our modern, modern science, or the founding fathers of modern science, the vast majority of, of these guys, people like Galileo, like the Newton, Kepler, Copernicus, Francis Bacon, they were all strongly dedicated Christians. They were all firm believers um, in, in God. And yet they were the ones that we, that, that formed the basis for modern science as we have it today. Okay. Um, now, how does that come about? How does there this consistency, or how did these uh, founding fathers of science find that consistency between the science that they were pursuing or studying and the theology, the faith that they, that they had? Um, let's look into that a little bit. And now, I'm trying to, the content that I'm showing here, the things I'm doing here, um, I used to teach like courses on you know, theology and science, and I'm trying to distill about three to four months of stuff into about 35 minutes here. So um, excuse me if it looks a little, seems a little rushed. I, I do hope that there will be other opportunities later on you know, through our Facebook groups for continuing dialogue and discussion or even just, just conversations afterwards uh, on, on these things. Okay? So if you look at the writings of some of these guys, for example, with the Newton um, you know, and, and Galileo, they wrote a lot about... Um, their belief in an infinite and eternal and personal God. Okay? 
Um, in fact, Isaac Newton wrote more about theology than he did about you know, mathematics and, and physics, even though we know, most people know Newton more as a mathematician and, um, and as a physicist. Okay? Nicholas Copernicus, um, he made the statement that to comprehend the works of God, or to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate and degree the wonderful workings of his laws, surely all this must be pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance cannot be more grateful um, than knowledge. So this idea of studying the heavens, studying the stars, studying the promotion of the planets was an act of worship to, to God. Um, that by better understanding, you know, when we are worshiping our God, we are acknowledging um, his glory and his majesty and his works. And for these, uh, the, these scientists, their act of studying what God had made was an act of worship because they were, they were acknowledging then the glory and majesty of God through an understanding of what God had made. So this belief, in order for modern science... One of the founding basis of modern science that we have today is this idea that this universe is orderly and understandable, that it's in intelligible, okay? That we have these laws, you know, the law of gravity. Um, we have the laws of planetary motion. Now, the basis of those laws is not in science itself, okay? It's not because of science that we understand that there is these laws. And, and, and for these men, um, you know, these founding fathers of science, that was the case as well. Their basis in believing that this universe was orderly and understandable came from their belief in their, their theological uh, belief. The conviction came not from the observations of the world, but from biblical principles. Okay? And I think C.S. Lewis you know, one of my favorite writers, kind of summarizes this uh, very well. That men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislature. Okay? Let me uh, distill that down a little bit. The basis for these men in believing that there was a law and order of the universe came because of their belief in a lawgiver, in this God that did that. Um, created the universe to be this way. If there wasn't a, a, a lawgiver, a legislator, as C.S. Lewis puts it, there wouldn't be these laws to this universe as we have it. And so for these men to study and to try to discover and uncover these laws of science that we have today, it was because that they, they were believed that they were trying to, they're uncovering and discovering the laws that God himself had have written. Okay. Um, and an example of how it was this belief in the rational and lawful God that they believed in the lawfully ordered universe. An example of this is in um, Johannes Kepler and the orbit of Mars. <clears throat> uh, Johannes Kepler, just a little quiz here. Anyone remember what, what is he most known for? Anyone remember your history of science or physics class? Kepler. <laughs> Laws of planetary motion, excellent, great job, okay? Yay, science, good job, okay? Okay, so Kepler, uh, the, his background was really interesting. Again, he, Kepler initially wanted to become a pastor, okay? He couldn't cut it as a pastor, 
So he became a, a, a physicist. <laughs> Usually in our society, that's kind of seen as the opposite of the way around, okay? Um, but he wanted to be a, a pastor, but he, he wasn't able to do it. He became a physicist instead, and he later wrote um, that, you know, through his understanding of physics, that he was able to bring glory to God and God to use his gifts just as well as if he was a pastor, okay? So he worked with Tycho Brahe, who, and he had the privilege of having access to the most complete observational astronomical data that was available at the time, okay? Now, back then, this was, you know, early days, even before, or, or you know, soon after they, they had developed telescopes. But in order to make observations, that they would literally be spending decades plotting the trajectories and orbits of these planets. They would observe the skies you know, for day after day after day for years and years and even decades and collect that data. And then they were able to produce calculations of the orbits of, of planets. Now, this is before computers. This is before calculators. They did all those calculations by hand um, and, and, again, spent decades to collect this data. And the, da the data that Tycho Brahe had was the most accurate and avail available at the time, okay? Now, at the time, the view was that planets, you know, kind of taking this kind of the, a Greek uh, philosophical system, the planets were orbited in perfect circles around, uh, around the sun, okay? And what Kepler discovered was that after they tabulated the data, made the calculations that the orbit of Mars was just a little bit off. Um, and you know, if, if you want to be precise about it, it was about eight minutes of arc off, which is very, 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 very small compared to you know, the, the actual orbit of Mars. But now other scientists at the time had said that it was just, well, you know, you can't expect things to be perfect. You can't expect the universe to be absolutely perfect you know, and precise and orbit perfect circles. But Kepler said no. Because of his belief that God had ordained this universe, that created and set the planetary motions in, in their place, that God was a perfect God, that he would not make things just a little bit off. It's kind of like if you're trying to make a, a circle or a sphere and it's, yeah, it's a little lopsided or something like that. He did not believe that God would make things imperfect or imprecise. And so he believed that because of his view of the perfection that God had created the universe with, um, he looked and looked and invested and tried to find an explanation for why the orbit of Mars was just a little bit off. And eventually he arrived at the conclusion, um, what became one of his flaws of planetary motion, that the planets actually orbit in ellipses rather than perfect circles. And when you put it in that way, you know, he's able to describe things in the very, you know, concise and perfect uh, mathematical equation, and the orbit of Mars fit, and other other planets fit perfectly within that, that view. And, and this is just one example of many that, in which it is the theological basis of these early founding fathers of science that guided them to more accurate and more precise scientific understanding of our universe. And so that is why, um, you know, as a result of when you look at these, the history of science, um, you know, uh, 
historians of science, for example, like Nancy Piercy, Charles Saxon, describe um, in their book, The Soul of Science, that far from impeding the progress of science, Christianity had actually encouraged it, that the Christian culture within which science arose was not a menace, but a midwife to science. So the idea is that Christianity, in fact, was the basis behind the modern science that we have today. By no means was science and Christian faith enemies to each other, um, uh, even historically. Okay. Science provides descriptions and theories on the process and mechanisms of formation of the universe. It does not tell us about the purpose and meaning of our existence. Okay. Um, Science was affirmed by these founding fathers as a means of discovering the truths of the universe that God had made. Theology and science were affirming of each other in this mutual pursuit of, of this truth. And I, I want to show this, this chart here that I think can help us to understand the basis of this, this relationship. Um, this is kind of like a summary of how some of these, for example, Galileo is one who wrote a lot about this, but it really helps us to, sh to understand how there can be an affirmation and understanding, and yet at the same time, there can be situations in which there is conflict, okay? So, <clears throat> what we can understand is that, or believe is that God is the author the creator of this universe, of nature. Okay, so, so God is the author of nature, of what we see around us. God is also the author of, of scripture. Okay, so the, the word of God um, as revealed through, through scripture, the word of God as spoken, you know, uh, as he spoken the universe into existence. And since God is the author of both of these, between scripture and nature, there can, must be necessary agreement. There must be agreement. There cannot be conflict between the two of them. God is the author of both. Okay. Now, our understanding of nature is through the lens of human interpretation. Okay? We're, we can, our best understanding of nature, um, and that's where we get what we call science, that it's our interpretation, our understanding of what God has, has made. And same with scripture, you know, what we call theology is our human interpretation and understanding of, of, of scripture, what God has revealed through, through his word. Now, because both of these are human interpretations, because we are fallible, you know, human beings are fallible, we make mistakes, we don't understand things clearly, then between science and theology, there is the potential for conflict. There is the potential for those two things to be in disagreement with each other. But when we find situations in which our science is in disagreement with theology, it's not because you know, what God has made through nature is in conflict with what God has revealed through scripture. It's because the conflict is in the lower level, is in our understanding of those two areas. Um, what we can always continue to affirm, though, is that what God has made through nature and what God has revealed through Scripture is always going to be in agreement um, with each other. And our goal, then, is to pursue, continue to work on our science, continue to work on theology until we can arrive at the agreement that we know that there must be um, because God is the author of, of both of them. Now, I've been speaking all this time, and I haven't even quoted a passage of Scripture. 
Okay, um, we're talking about with you know with Genesis one that the Bible starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that is, in fact, sets the tone or the basis for everything else that that follows. Okay, if, if you accept the biblical narrative, that it is God who is the ultimate source of all the things that we have. Um, and all the things that, that came. If you reject the scripture, then there is no basis for, um, for a cause for everything. And so the conflict that we have here is not between science and, and, and our faith. The conflict is between these worldviews of whether our basis or, or the cause or belief is in a theistic position or an atheistic position. The, the two narratives that are competing with each other here is this, the narrative of a meaningful, creative, or purposeful creation versus an unplanned, accidental, or meaningless uh, random chance um, by which you know, we, find, we describe the origins um, of, of what we have. So <clears throat> do the findings of modern science support one narrative over the other? Okay. And I'd say that it does, okay? And here's, I'm gonna provide just a few examples, again, just because, sake of time, there are so many possible examples, um, but I'm just gonna focus on just a few, uh, a few of the ones. Oh, actually, let me hit on one thing real quick first. Um, on, in the Facebook group, we had a few, there was a few questions that were, were, were posted, and one of the questions is, um, Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me let me get back to here first. Okay. Um, okay. So the beginning of the universe. Okay. It is only about 80, 70 or eighty years ago that the accepted scientific view of the universe was that the universe had always existed. It was an eternal universe, a steady universe. There was no beginning to the universe. There would be no end um, to the universe. And that was the accepted scientific position at the time. And of course, that position was in complete conflict with the idea that there was a beginning um, of the universe. With Genesis 1, God made the heavens and the earth. Okay. Um, now, about 70, 80 years ago, a Catholic priest who was an astronomer and a physicist by the name of Georges Lemaitre um, proposed, based on some of the observations that have been, the new observations that have been made, that in fact the universe did have a beginning. And, and this later became known as you know, the Big Bang Theory of creation. Um, and it was called such because it was derided by the other scientists. Other scientists rejected this idea, this notion, um, but their rejection came not because of the scientific evidence that was presented uh, by Lamatra and the others who are proponents of this theory, but because the theory seemed, was too theological. Because the theory sounded too much like Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it was rejected widely by the vast majority of scientists until it reached a point where the evidence for the position could not be denied. And eventually, and so now it is the accepted position um, that the universe did in fact have a, a beginning. And that of course 
you know, works very well with the view, uh, the Christian view that God created the universe and began, and that it began to exist. And that is such a huge step for us because if you have a universe that begins to exist, then there must be some cause, there must be a, a creator or a beginner for that. And that's something that, um, that a lot of scientists are, have to work through, have to work uh, with. This idea of how can we have a beginning universe um, and the, the implications um, behind that. Now, one of the, uh, the questions that, that comes about, um, with, often comes about when we're talking about this, is the question, well, if God made the universe, then who made God? And this idea that you just, you're kind of just pushing it back, right? You know, if everything has to have a cause or a beginning, then you, then you can ask the question about God. Who made God um, if God made the, the universe? Um, and the, the kind of disciple answer is, you know, is this, that only things that begin to exist have to have a cause, okay? If you have something that is always there, then you do not need, it does not need a cause or a beginning uh, to it. Um, so God, you know, the universe began to exist, therefore it has to have a cause. God is eternal. God did not, it was never a point where God did not exist, therefore God does not have to have a cause. And some people say, listen, I say, wait, that's just, that's just talk. That's just philosophy. That's just, you're kind of like getting a, an easy way out. But it's not. Because again, like you said, about 80 years ago, the view was that the universe had always existed. Back then, there was no question about, well, the universe had to have a cause. It's only because of the recent findings that, that the universe did begin to exist. That's why there needs to be this cause. All right, let me jump to this point. Um, the second little evidence I want to, to share here, okay? Um, is this idea of what we call a fine-tuning of the universe. Um, that's the philosophy in here. Okay. Now, some of you may, you know, if you follow some of the science news or, you know, you look at the little trending topics on, on Facebook, um, recently there was you know, training some of the things with the Kepler Space Telescope that they had, where NASA had been discovering more and more planets that seem to have the characteristics of Earth. And it's made, a big deal is made out of this because of this idea that, you know, if we can find more planets like Earth, then it makes Earth not special, okay? And if Earth is not special, then that kind of suggests that, you know, that there is no uh, specialness that's required for us to be here. That if the Earth and, and life is very common around the universe, then that seems to imply that um, there's no need for some kind of special creator or creation um, for this. Okay? Now, what those discoveries or those points are kind of don't talk about is that there's a lot more to it than just finding a planet that's like Earth um, that's orbiting kind of in a position where you can have liquid water. There's actually a lot of things that have to be right in order for life to, to, to be here. And, and scientists, both like um, theistic and atheistic astronomers, call this the apparent fine-tuning of, 
of the universe. Um, and what we mean by that is kind of like this idea that these things like the constants, the values of the speed of light, you know, the gravitation constant, have to be in such a precise value in order for there to be any life at all or anything at all in the universe. And I'm going to show this little video to show as one example of, of that. So hopefully we can get our, that sound um, going here. And let me see if we can get this to work. <clears throat> From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered, by even a hair's breadth. No physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Okay, that's one example of this idea of what we call universal fine-tuning. And the way that kind of these, uh, that we can imagine this is if there is this universe creation machine, Okay, or universe creating machine. And this thing has like hundreds of these dials. And these dials are real, have really, really fine values. Like, like we said with gravity, um, there's like 10 to the 60 different settings, which is a huge number. And there's hundreds of other values like this. In order for our universe to be the way it is and to have life, these dials, hundreds of different dials and settings have to be set in a very, very precise combination, precise range of values in order for um, us to be here. And we're not just talking about, you know, human beings here on Earth. We're talking about the fact that in order to get even matter in this universe or, or uh, to get anything bigger than, you know, say, subatomic particles, you have to have these values that are just, just right. Um, let me give one another example of, of this. Um, the ratio of electrons to protons. Here's another little pop quiz here, okay? Um, What's the same about electrons and protons? Anyone remember what's the the charge of electron and proton is the same, okay? Now that is a very 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 weird thing. 
because electrons and protons are very, very different in many, in just about every other respect. Electrons are tiny little things. Protons are about thousands, uh, you know, 1,800 times bigger than the proton or than an electron, and yet they have an exactly the same charge. And that's important because if they didn't have the exact same charge, okay, then the, the electrical charge between these two things, or there would be some either like. If you have too many protons or too many electrons, there would be a net charge that throws things apart. You would have no physical matter whatsoever because all the matter would, um, the charge would cause all the matter to, to be separate. Now, being equal is, is, is very important in, even in my family. Um, I have two kids, one that's eight, one's six, and everything has to be equal between them, okay? Um, if we have like cake or something, or a cupcake, and I'm splitting it between them, they, they will like measure to make sure that they have the exactly the same size. And if they don't, we have problems. Um, and, and there's, I mean, it's an even greater problem when you have differences in, say, these, these electrical charges. Um, how different or how similar do they have to be? Here's an analogy. Take a planet the size of Earth, okay? And we, so imagine that this planet, we'll call it planet X, is covered with sand up to height about three meters. That's about 10 feet, maybe about to the ceiling, okay? The entire planet is covered with sand up to 10 feet high. And so the number of grains of sand on that planet would represent the number of protons, say. Now take another planet, same size, call it planet Y, cover it the same depth of with sand, you know, 10 feet worth of sand, the number of grains of sand on that planet would be the number of electrons. The ratio between the number of electrons and the protons in this universe is so precise that the number of grains of sand on one planet would be exactly the same as the number of grains of sand on that other planet. And it has to be that precise in order for any matter, physical matter, um, or or anything bigger than you know, little subatomic particles to exist in this universe. Again, that's just one, one example of the precision that we're talking about for life to be here. <clears throat> now, people can look at that these these kind of results and think, you know, well, it's, that's just the way that things are. Okay? That if they weren't here, we just happen to be lucky that you know, if they weren't like this, of course, we wouldn't be around here to, to talk about it. Um, but that's like kind of saying like, um, well, let me give one, one more analogy here. Uh, so imagine that you've been kidnapped by a madman. Okay? Just, these are, I, I, I read some very interesting things. I get some very interesting analogies here. Okay? Um, so imagine you've been kidnapped by a madman. He ties you to this big machine. This big machine um, will, has 10 decks of cards in it. And it, will, it shuffles the decks of cards, and it will draw one card from each of those 10 decks. Okay? And the madman tells you that unless the machine, when it does its thing, unless the machine draws an ace of hearts from each of those 10 decks you know, on that shuffle, the machine's going to explode and and wipe you out for the face of the planet, okay? So you're there tied to the machine, and you're you know, offering your last prayers because you know, obviously, that the chances of that happening are, are nil. You're, you're, you are a goner. Um, so the machine does its thing. 
you hear a little ping, and you're surprised to see that 10 aces of hearts have come, popped out from the machine, and the machine doesn't explode. So you're there saying, hallelujah, you know, <laughs> someone saved me. There's something, I guess, you know, this must have been some kind of joke or, or um, you know, someone rigged the machine to be this way. And the madman comes in and smacks you on the head and says, you silly little victim. <laughs> of course, why are you so surprised at this result? Because if the machine hadn't done this, you, you wouldn't be here. You, you'd be gone. You wouldn't be here to question it. So, of course, things had to be this way in order for um, you to still be here to, to question it and to talk about it. Okay? Now, who is reasonable here? Who's the more reasonable person here? <laughs> well, hopefully you won't be the victim of this. Um, now, of course, the madman can say that. Yeah, and that's true. But just because it's true that, it, the, that all this, this coincidence of this the result had happened in order for us to be here doesn't therefore mean that there is no need for an explanation for it, okay? Um, because the chances of getting the result that we saw you know, 10 aces of hearts from 10 decks of cards, all shuffled, supposedly shuffled randomly, is so infinitesimally small that when you, if you got that result, it's reasonable to assume that there must be some kind of actual explanation or reason or plan or purpose behind this result. And that's kind of the situation that we're in with these, these constants, that we have these, and again, hundreds of other values that seem to be so precise and all have to be lined up just right in order for this universe to be here the way that it is, that it seems reasonable to look at those values, this, this apparent coincidence, and think that there must be some kind of explanation. There must be some kind of cause. There must be some kind of purpose behind why things are the way that they are. And so when we're in this situation like this, when we look at these results, it's actually an affirmation of that this belief that, that there is a purpose or cause or beginner or creator of this universe is, in fact, a rational uh, view. So when we look at this world, the world may say that believers in God thrown um, aside reason to follow after a myth. Okay. But then the truth is that Christians actually have a solid um, intellectual and spiritual foundation to stand on. The science, when we look at it, actually offers us reasons to believe rather than reasons to disbelieve. Okay? The humbling expected narrative when we talk about science and faith is that science wins and faith loses. But what I hope that we can draw from you know, in this be a very, very uh, uh, short summary of things is that science actually has much to affirm for us in our, as our faith as believers. Um, that science can reveal truth about the creation that actually points us closer uh, to um, the creator. Now, there were other questions that were posted in this forum, and I don't have the time to, to work that. But hopefully, you know, through... Through some other conversations, hopefully we can, I can try to post some more things in our Facebook group. So another little shout out. If you haven't joined our Facebook group for Renew Church OC, please, please do so. There's a lot of interesting things going on, on in there. Um, I'll try. Hopefully we can have some further discussion about those things as we um, you know, work through some of these, these, these kinds of questions. 
next week, I'll actually look at scripture. <laughs> Today was kind of my teacher hat on, on things. Um, next week, I hope I can put kind of a little bit more of a pastor's hat on things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I um, know there's a lot of questions that we um, have when we look around at this world. I pray, Father, that you may um, help for our brothers and sisters here and for those who are around us to um, be able to find and understand these, these answers and the answers in a way that will um, strengthen our, our faith in you and encourage us in knowing that there is um, reasons for us to believe Thank you for the world that you have created and what you have uh, revealed to us um, through your creation. Um, acknowledge that you do have a plan for us and a purpose for, uh, for our lives. Um, please help to affirm that for all of us. In Jesus' name. <clears throat>